Welcome to Planning Unplugged, a podcast series from planning lawyers at Womble Bond Dickinson. We operate in an ever-changing world of law and policy, so we're here to provide you with the latest insight and a point of view like no other. Oh, hi, everybody. It's Kate Ashworth again. Um, I'm back with Helen and James for our second podcast on biodiversity net gain. This time we are thinking about this topic from the perspective of a local planning authority and what challenges they might be facing. Um, Hi both. Hi Kate. Hi Kate. I'm going to dive straight in. So we know that despite the amended timescales, biodiversity net gains going to become mandatory from January 2024. We've now had draft regulations and an awful lot of guidance published. Um, Some great weekend reading for us all. What do you both think the biggest challenges are going to be for local planning authorities? I think from my perspective, Kate, it goes back to what we touched on last time. It's the need for local authorities to collaborate as early as possible if they're not doing so already. And the main purpose of that will be so they can identify key sites for the delivery of BNG, especially where you're a local planning authority in a predominantly urban area. And linked to that, I think Then if you move on to how the BNG is delivered in those areas, that is going to work better if it's delivered by either a master developer across larger multi-phase sites. That will make it easier to coordinate if there's been that collaboration between local planning authorities in those areas already. And also if there's a master plan, either a specific local authority master plan or potentially linked master plans between authorities, that will then help to coordinate how BNG is delivered across those sites. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, I think that for authorities, the resourcing of it is just such a, a key issue right now. It, it, and it links into a wider piece for you know authorities generally in discharging their planning functions. You know, we've seen recently planning fees going up, but they aren't ring fenced to specific priorities within the authority. So I think you know this is another layer that's being added to the planning process that does increase complexity, does add to the workload of already stretched officers. And I think it's probably inevitable that there will be delays for developers whilst the system beds in. I think we've probably started to see instances of some developers, despite what we said on our last podcast, trying to get in ahead of the deadline for, you know, for when BNG comes live and perhaps is causing a backlog in some authorities anyway. And that may well be something that we see going into the new year. One of the sort of statistics that sort of jumped out at me that I thought was quite interesting was the Chartered Institute of Ecology and Environmental Management you know, saying that of respondents to their survey of authorities, only 5% said their current ecological resource is sufficient and fewer than 10% said current expertise will be adequate to deliver BNG. So I think there's a huge gap, but how that gap is made up by authorities, given, you know, given the resource pressures that we, you know, we're just talking about, you can foresee that this could cause a real delay in the system. Absolutely. So yeah, you've got the pressures are coming in from every angle, aren't they? You've got financial pressures, resourcing pressures, and then to add to that, a load more extra, I guess, considerations when looking at planning applications, you can see those delays are are just going to get longer and longer. I think that's right. And as we've talked about previously, Kate, that you know a lot of this stuff is needs to be secured through agreements with authorities. Often, you know, Section 106 will be commonly used by developers to secure their gains. And again, it's another layer of complexity and, and also sort of an area that author- many authorities might have started to look at from a policy perspective. But the statutory perspective is slightly different to that. And again, it's just that complexity that they need to deal with. What are your, both your thoughts on, on the government then? Do you think they can do anything to assist local authorities to cope with this imminent change in, in the law? 
it's interesting, isn't it? Because the government said that the guidance from draft regulations would be published in November, and they were. They were just published on the very last day of of, of November, and just before Christmas, and, and going live in in you know on the first of January in the new year. So I, I don't think so far the government have perhaps done their best to help authorities, although they have signposted the sorts of things that authorities need to do. But I think you know being very clear with authorities what they need to do in terms of delivering BNG how local nature recovery strategies will work and the responsibilities for those, but also potentially how those might be funded over the longer term. I think some of the detail could be better. And I think that there is this risk, as we sort of touched on earlier, about the fact that authorities up and down the country are just so under-resourced. These increased planning fees, okay, great, but it, there isn't, in the absence of ring fencing, I think there's a real risk that it, that, that money just goes elsewhere and actually doesn't develop the expertise within authorities that's needed to deliver this. I think I have seen a few agreements that do deal with monitoring costs for BNG. So I don't know if that's one angle. And I think that's going to depend a lot on how councils share good practice between them as well. And that will also help them to bring forward a consistent approach, which will then help both developers and landowners. But I think it's really key that they do share good practice and what they're doing, because it's not necessarily going to be the same across the board. I think it's also going to be key that not just LPA function of the council, but all function of the council that may have to deal with BNG are aware of the relevant guidance. And I think there's going to be a a lot of training needed. But again, I think it can be shared between authorities and is going to be very much dependent on that particular function. I think that's absolutely right. And I think from from a developer perspective for a moment, although I appreciate we're obviously looking at BNG from the LPA focus in this podcast, but I think developers would really welcome that certainty from planning authorities if they were clear about what their expectations are around what are the monitoring fees, if there will be, is there a scale of fee payable? How will it be dealt with? I think it just would benefit everybody because developers then know what's required and I think it would allow for a much smoother process if that approach is followed. Yeah I think we touched on this last time sort of collaboration was touched upon but also just just clarity and that communication between all the different bodies that this change is affecting. So as well as being a key area for local authorities in their capacity as local planning authority. Do you think this this affects other departments? Like which other departments should be up to speed with these changes for biodiversity net gain? I think this is such a fundamental change to the system. And I think that it, it really is about the whole authority being aware about this new new regime that applies. But there is there is a risk that it could just be looked at. An authority could take a siloed approach. And maybe that is a real risk because of the under-resourcing. But we've seen from the guidance that, you know, the government does expect actually that the other areas of the council from sort of ecology and parks, green space, all other sorts of areas, flood risk can be sort of addressed more holistically and include biodiversity net gain within it. And, and I think you know, there are resources out there, both from Natural England and from services like the Planning Advisory Service, that, that authorities would be you know, well advised to, to look at and, and look at that training piece to see how biodiversity net gain can deliver for authorities and for the people who live within those areas, rather than it just be dealt with on a siloed basis, a very sort of reactive response to development, which I think is where it could not perhaps realise its potential. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that, James. And I think another element is for local authorities to consider to be um, enforcing bodies, both for on and off site gains. There's obviously going to be significant gains that will need to be secured for a long period of time and a variety of mechanisms to be able to do that. So LPAs as enforcing bodies in their role as as enforcing bodies are able or will be able to charge for those services and there will be another income stream available to those authorities which are as we've touched on earlier in the podcast going to be really stretched 
I think that's right. And, and like we were saying earlier, though, although in their sort of planning authority function, or these authorities are under a lot of pressure, but biodiversity net gain regime does actually allow, as you're just saying, Helen, a real opportunity for income generation from authorities, because many authorities will also be landowners. So they will have the opportunity to look at what they what they own and consider how they might be able to create and enhance habitats within those areas to create biodiversity units of, of their own. And I know a lot of authorities have started that process and started that work. There may also be a role for the authority to act as more of a, in a capacity as a broker, whereby they sort of connect developers to landowners with biodiversity units for sale and possibly act in a role where they take a percentage of, of, the, of that fee, for example, acting in that broker role. So I think, I think there are opportunities there and it's just having the expertise and the resource to grasp over the longer term could really serve those authorities very well. And so in terms of these mandatory requirements coming into force, how do you think these are going to impact on local plan making? I think it's going to depend on the the stage at which local authority is in their plan making. I think there's a risk that there is going to be some conflict with existing local planning policies and what's coming forward in the mandatory requirements. I think there's potentially, well, there is a big piece of work for any emerging local plans in terms of how those emerging policies are, are kept consistent with the new requirements. I also think there's a lot of work to do in terms of supporting planning documents that will sit alongside those local planning policies, especially where we're talking about local authorities bringing forward master plans and how they all fit together. But I think going back to what you were saying, Kate, in terms of being clear and making sure that collaboration and that communication is happening across the board, there's a lot of benefit in looking at that a piece of work as early as possible to make sure there is a consistent approach and it's clear for those that are bringing forward planning applications as early as possible so there aren't surprises further down the line and I think there's there's room for another C in terms of being creative from a local planning authority perspective, especially where there are there may be a bit of time before a local planning authority want to bring forward new local planning policies. It's how they fit the new requirements with potential conflicts in existing policies. I completely agree with that. And, and I think there is a risk that you could have this ambiguity between you know current policies under current plans and the statutory biodiversity net gain. I've seen that in a few examples. And going back to that point of, of Helen's just saying about clarity, just for the smooth operating of this new system, really, for everybody to understand how these things will interact with one another. But I completely agree. I think that it very much depends what stage the plan is at. And sort of linking back to what we were saying a short while ago about looking at BNG not just in a silo and how it connects with other policies. I think there is quite a lot of work around that. So uh, like we touched on around health and well-being and, and flood risk, this it can knit into a lot of other policies. So just sort of bolting it onto a plan that's quite far advanced is probably not going to deliver the benefits that it could do. And it may just be a, a bit of a maybe not realising its full potential if uh, to happen. And I think that goes back to what we were saying before in terms of who else in the council needs to be well-versed on BNG. And I think for that, the point you were just saying, James, to be dealt with sufficiently, I think it needs to be a council priority to think what other council priorities are affected by BNG or could be enhanced by this new system and making sure that not just local planning policies, but other council policies are picking up on that as well. Sounds like there's a really big piece here, actually, and an awful lot to think about. Um, you know, it's not just a standalone change in the law. It impacts on so much. And, and interestingly, what we touched upon earlier in terms of the local authority and, and different elements they're thinking about. But actually, you know, it's not just with the planning hat. There's actually a landowner hat and then also a developer hat. So for local authorities, they're impacted from every angle. It's really interesting. So 
we talked about this last time. We've, we've said the date's January 2024. You know that. Let's drill down then from a local planning authority's perspective. What key things should they be doing to get ready? I think the first thing for local authorities to do to get ready is, as we've spoken about previously, is to review their local plans and have a close eye on what resources they have now and how the change to requirements affect those and make sure they don't miss any new deadlines that have come forward in the new requirements. They should keep collaborating with other local authorities and applicants who are bringing forward planning applications and they need, as part of the continued collaboration with other local authorities, they need to make sure that they're aware of available BNG sites in their both in their local authority boundary and outside. So they're clear in terms of where the opportunities for the delivery of BNG lie. Another important thing for local authorities to start thinking about now is that they've got clear processes in place. And that's both from a pre-application perspective. For example, where do developers and applicants go as a first port of call to talk about how they are expected to deliver BNG, what the requirements are for a local authority. And linked to that, it's how a council should be proactive in talking to developers. They know that have sites lined up and have applications lined up and where those specific sites are that local authority have in mind for the BNG to be delivered. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I, I think there's a distinction between sort of the authority sort of discharging its decision making process, which is sort of perhaps reactive to what's you know actually coming into the authority at any one particular time. But I think also there's a, a sort of strategic angle to this, which is about making sure that they have a almost a pipeline of BNG units available to deliver their local plan aspirations in terms of housing numbers, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, as Helen was saying, that if there's clarity around who to contact. So if landowners voluntarily wish to enter into a conservation covenant, for example, how do they raise that with the authority? How do they have a discussion about what types of habitat enhancements might be welcomed by the authority or how it connects up with other with other habitats or perhaps delivers of other strategic objectives, for example, around well-being. You could see, for example, around you might have permissive paths or, or you know, cycleways or, or things like that running through some of these areas, which which could you know generate other benefits as well. So I think there is a role for authorities there in about sort of managing and sort of creating these connections between landowners and, and developers, particularly as it was a surprise to me, so unless I've missed it before, which is that the the register that's maintained by Natural England won't have contact details within it. So there's, there'll need to be another mechanism whereby developers are, are able to you know, be put in touch with the owners of BNG units to facilitate their schemes. So for me, I think there's a there's a short-term piece, which is getting ready, and there's a longer-term piece, which is the strategic angle for delivering BNG over the long term and realising its benefits. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you both. Really, really interesting discussion again. Top three takeaways on biodiversity net gain from a local planning authority perspective. I'll go first again. So I think for me, it's really about deciding on a process. Each local authority, I think, needs to go away and decide if they have a preferred approach that they'd like developers to take in terms of how biodiversity net gain is approached and secured. And then having a clear process on who you contact in the council, who you need to talk to um, about either um, you have units that can be sold or you need units. Um, Where there isn't a planning application, how do you register that with the council so I think yeah that process around contacting the council and starting that discussion without having a kind of pre an official pre-application query I guess 
I think for me, it would be looking at uh, registering as a, as a responsible body for the purposes of conservation covenants. That's an option that authorities can voluntarily pursue. And the guidance on that was published, I believe, earlier in the year by the government. And I think that would give authorities then a, another tool for managing biodiversity units and the delivery of biodiversity net gain within their area, rather than leaving it to potentially other bodies or other entities where they perhaps might have less control and maybe not such a clear route to enforcing those obligations. For me, I think, I know we're looking at this predominantly from a local planning authority perspective, but it's not just a planning issue. The the way it's managed and secured and delivered will fall on the councillors as a local planning authority. But I think in order to make this new regime a success across the board, a council needs to be aware of it from a full council perspective and all the many hats that sit within that and to make sure it's linked to council priorities so that it's delivered not just from a planning perspective, but right across the board. That was a great discussion. Thank you both again. So next time we'll be talking about biodiversity net gain for the third of this mini series and we'll be looking at it from a landowner perspective. Join us then. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Kate. See you next time. Thanks, Kate.